Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I share my recent visit on the Lead Like You Give a Damn podcast, where we discuss truly remarkable leadership. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Lead Like You Give a Damn, where I speak with leaders and leadership experts who have cracked the code on leading with authenticity, purpose, and effectiveness. I'm your host, Dave McKeown, and my guest today is Dr. Jonathan Westover. Dr. Westover is Chair and Professor of Organizational Leadership in the Woodbury School of Business at UVU. He's the Academic Director of the UVU Center for Social Impact and the UVU SimLab, and Faculty Fellow for Ethics and Public Life in the Center for the Study of Ethics. He's also an experienced uh, OD. HR and leadership consultant with Human Capital Innovations and the author of Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Listen in as we talk about the need for a systems approach to solving our biggest challenges, the enduring crisis of the big resignation and how to become a truly remarkable leader. As always, make sure you're subscribed to get notified of each episode as it comes out. Let me know if you have any questions or comments and as always, please enjoy the show. Well, hey, John, thank you so much for being here with me today. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you doing? I am just great, John. I was just perusing an article that you had written recently where you quoted a, a paragraph from UNESCO where you said, the future is uncertain. Climate change, pandemics, economic crisis, social exclusion, racism, the oppression of women, intergenerational conflict, and more shatter the conventional images of the future that humans use to plan, to feel secure, to be confident enough to invest in tomorrow. I, and I just got exhausted reading that I'm like gosh there's so much (laughs) coming down the pipe and it feels like it used to be the case that for leaders they could at least turn a blind eye to some if not all of the stuff in here with the excuse of well I'm just delivering results for the business but it feels like that's not enough anymore that as leaders in our organizations we have to address these issues what is the role of a leader in tackling these and how do we go about it without that sense of exhaustion yeah I mean that's a really good question it's certainly not meant to you know be exhausting or to scare us from action rather the the whole idea is let's try to better understand truly what the issues are that we're facing and be clear-eyed about it so that we can make positive steps forward, you know, and take a systems approach to dealing with these really complex problems. Because the reality is those are all major challenges that we face. And there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. The world is a messy, complex place. It's, and I believe that uncertainty is the name of the game. Mm. And so we can either, you know, I know that people feel more comfortable when they feel like there's a sense of knowing and certainty and that they feel like they have control, but that's 
that's a facade. Mm. And so if we can lean into the uncertainty and recognize it for what it is, then we have the potential to, to deal with it in mm. productive ways. So that's certainly the way I approach it. I totally recognize that that can be overwhelming to people. And that, frankly, that's a big part of the problem because we have all of these big, messy, complex, pressing issues facing communities, societies, the world as a whole. And, you know, people are more comfortable kind of going around living their daily lives, maintaining the status quo. And we do need a level of disruption in order to address some of these really difficult, challenging problems. You mentioned taking a systems approach to these issues and challenges. That's one of those terms that is used quite a lot. What does it mean for us to take a systems approach? And what can I, as a leader of my team and my organization, how do I fit into that overarching systems approach? Yeah, I mean, that's also a very good question. I mean, systems seeking is really a fancy way of saying we're going to really utilize the scientific method to better understand holistically all the components of the challenge that we're facing. Mm. And so, you know, when I think about designing a study, for example, I'm in academia, I do consulting work on the side, but I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, and I have hypotheses. And when I have an, a hypothesis, I design a study. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand the impact of certain variables on the outcome. So I'm in organizations, leadership, HR, you know, that's my space of research. So mm -hmm. say I want to better understand challenges facing an organization in terms of its inclusion culture, okay? And maybe I hypothesize that these certain types of policies, practices, procedures either increase or decrease the level of inclusion within an organization. Well, that's great. So then I try to figure out how I'm going to systematize that. And I'm going to try to figure out how I can actually measure those things to see the impact that they have on inclusion culture. Mm. Uh, but what I also have to do when I'm designing these types of studies is I have to be able to control for all of the other types of context surrounding that culture. And the same thing is true when we're talking about broad societal systems, when we're talking about organizational systems, when we're thinking about things like climate change, there are all these different things that impact it. And if, if I only look at like one or two variables and I can say, oh yeah, this one variable impacts climate change. So I need to address that one variable. Okay. Well then what we end up doing is starting to play whack-a-mole and mm -hmm. we're not really addressing the core problem because we're just tweaking around the fringe and we're addressing one specific, one variable, one aspect at a time. Time. Mm. If I'm doing a real good academic study, I should be controlling for just about everything that I can possibly control for to make sure that I'm including that in the analysis and I'm understanding the impact of these other contextual factors on the outcome. Same thing with systems thinking. I'm taking a holistic approach to try to understand the problems that are facing you know, the organization, my team, or you know, going more broadly, society, the world as a whole. That is complicated. That is difficult. It's certainly easier to have you know, a simple model model, a simple approach to dealing with complex problems. The problem is simple models typically are not sufficient to fully address complex mm. problems. And so you need a more holistic way to go about doing it. And so when I think about social problems, for example, we have different ways to go about tackling social problems. You have like nonprofits and faith communities that try to tackle social challenges. You have government agencies and the government as a whole that tries to tackle certain social problems through different mechanisms. You have businesses that employ people that contribute to the economy that has a role to play in the social problems of the community and on and on and on, right? We have all these different things. And if I only look at business, for example, as the solution to solving social problems, then I'm missing out on other really huge segments of the problem. If I'm only looking at faith communities and nonprofits as a means to address social problems, I'm missing out on a, a huge piece of the puzzle. And same thing within organization. Let's say we have an underlying problem with attracting and 
retaining good people. That's actually a huge problem, a common problem for most organizations right now. We're in the middle of you know what's been termed the great resignation. Mm. So people are reassessing their work life. They're reassessing what matters to them, where and how they want to work. And some organizations have been able to adapt and pivot. Other organizations are trying to maintain kind of the same old model of work that was existent pre-pandemic. And you know others are trying to move towards more virtual or hybrid work arrangements. Mm. Uh, regardless of the nature of the work itself and the organization, if that's my core problem, I'm trying to understand attracting and retaining good quality people for my business, then I need to be looking you know, at all different components that are contributing to that problem. Now, some of it's external to the company, right? There's much larger global economic forces at play <laughs> and there's like this global pandemic and those, those forces are at play and they're influencing my ability to attract and retain good people. But there's also a, a lot of things that companies do control and they have to make decisions about how they're going to pull the levers or ignore certain levers of change to try to influence and you know create the type of change that they want. That's kind of a long-winded answer. But when I think about systems thinking, really, I just want to take a holistic approach to understanding the challenges that we're facing that necessitates that I be clear-eyed, that I stay curious, that I stay constantly striving to learn and understand that I'm trying to gather relevant information and understand the, act the, the metrics that actually matter and not worry myself or concern myself with the metrics that don't matter. Do you find that there is a challenge and a difficulty in translating the great work that you and your colleagues and your peers do in the academic world into actual real world on the ground tactics and actions in our organizations? Is there a gulf there? Is there a gap? And how do you cross it? I do think there's a gap. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I really try to focus on being what I would call, you know, a scholar practitioner because, you know, I do research and that's great that I have research and gets published and other academics read it and they might cite it that influences their research and so forth. It's the economic or excuse me, the academic endeavor. Right. And I do believe in that. I believe that's important. And we build on our scientific and academic knowledge and that betters humanity. I truly believe that, but it's a relatively small pool of people that are ever going to read an academic article that I write. So I do this big research study. I spend all this time and energy. There's all these great findings. And then I publish it in an academic journal. Okay, that's great. Then what? And I'm committed to trying to get these findings out to the end of the row, so to speak, that I don't want to be stuck in an ivory tower, you know, where I'm just theorizing and then, you know, conducting studies. I want to actually try to get the word out to practitioners and to organizational leaders so they know how to better lead their teams and their people. And they can do it based on good sound research not just the trends of the day or, you know, whatever, you know, has the attention of the media at the time. And that generally speaking is a huge problem though, because most academics don't have that kind of a scholar practitioner orientation. Mm. Uh, it's frankly not how they're rewarded in a university setting. And so the reward structures of an academic career, you know, generally such that depending on what kind of university you're at, you know, maybe they value teaching. Certainly research is going to be important and, and other activities, you know, to administer the, the needs of the, the university. But very rarely do universities explicitly say they want their professors actually, you know, doing industry-based work where they're influencing the surrounding uh, business community or trying to interact with, with other leaders. And so that's something that personally I feel strongly about. Personally, I try to devote time to 
That's why I run my own podcast, the Human Capital mm. Innovations podcast. It's why I write for Forbes and for HR.com magazines. It's why I have published a couple of my recent books prior to the pandemic. And so really, I mean, seriously, with two years ago, I did a little bit of practitioner-oriented work, way less than what I do now. Mm. And my focus in terms of my research and my scholarly work was the more traditional approach. Mm. And I decided, you know, before, actually before the pandemic hit, and then it just, I kind of took off with it during the pandemic, I decided, you know what, I really want to spend a lot more time working on this practitioner orientation and working with outlets uh, and sharing, you know, more extensively the things that I've learned, the things that I've studied. And then, you know, fed into my two practitioner oriented leadership books. They're not jargony. They're not academic. I do cite research in there, but it's, you know, it's very accessible. The things I talk about on my podcast and I interview leaders and thought leaders and executives and such. The whole idea is that I want to, to be able to reach as many people with these ideas to help them have a better work life, to help them lead better teams, to help organizations have more success. Mm. And, you know, I feel like I've helped move the needle, at least in my own sphere of influence. But I do believe generally speaking that scholars, academicians, they should be spending more time trying to share their work with the broader business community. I think that one of the aspects of that systems thinking approach to solving our greatest challenges is lacking or missing a, just an element of stitching up some of those key component parts. You know, you mentioned a whole bunch of different forms of organizations that are doing fantastic work, but often whenever you look at it, it just seems like there's a degree of disconnect. They're, they've all got their own kind of overarching vision, but there's maybe not as much of a sharing amongst different types of groups. So I, I think that model that you're building is fantastic. I want to get on to your book in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to touch on some of the challenges that you identified that have either been accelerated for us as a result of the pandemic or just brought out. And, you know, you mentioned the, the great resignation and this movement towards hybrid work. We've talked a little bit about just the need to respect and honor people in, in their wholeness. There are a ton of organizations facing supply chain issues. We've got potential a scale of inflation coming down the, the pike for us. It felt very much maybe a year or so ago that there was going to be an on-off switch. We go out, we've got all of these issues, everything will get sorted, and then we'll kind of go back to the way that it was. It feels way more like we're into a long tail impact of the pandemic. And in fact, that these challenges won't go away. They'll just morph into new and different challenges. How long do you anticipate us essentially identifying the challenges that we're facing with the pandemic as the starting point for it? Is it years? Is it decades? I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue. What some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There's no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of our problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws, and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path 
and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, frankly, I don't see us going back. So the pendulum is swinging a bit, right? And that's why there's a lot more conversation around hybrid work. Yep. So where we flip the switch and, you know, on a dime companies more or less had to go virtual or go home because of all the lockdown protocols and everything, you know, the pendulum has swung back a little bit, but frankly, people aren't willing after 18 plus months of having the flexibility, the autonomy, the control over their own work life and all of those different facets of their life. They don't want to go back to the office just for the sake of going back to the office. Mm -hmm. And what the pandemic has allowed us, it gave us a chance to challenge our assumptions about work. What is necessary? What's not necessary? What do we still need? What can we do without? And just because we always did things a certain way doesn't mean we need to always continue to do things that way. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I would be in so many meetings that I have to admit, I, I didn't really enjoy. And I thought this is kind of a dumb meeting, but when we get to the pandemic and then all of a sudden I start to really, I mean, it's not just a minor annoyance. It's like really recognizing these meetings that we're having are not only pointless, but they're sucking the soul and the energy out of people to be productive and to, to innovate and to accomplish great things. And so that's just one example, but we're doing all these things that just because it's the way we've always done them. And now we realize that there's better, more efficient, more effective ways to do the, these same things and have better outcomes. And so, you know, many workers simply aren't willing to go back to the old status quo. And I think it's always going to be that way moving forward. I think we disrupted, we kind of shook ourselves out of our stupor, you know, in our assumptions around the nature of work. We've disrupted that. We have new ideas about what work means to us and our careers and, and how we want to interact with our employers. And it's a big reason why the great resignation is happening is people simply aren't willing to put up with crappy companies, crappy bosses, crappy cultures. They know they have options. They want more flexibility and they're going to go find it. And so companies are going to either have to adapt or they're going to die. They're not going to get good talent. And I just don't see that changing. I mean, that's always been the case that you have to get good talent or you're going to die. And it's even more difficult now, especially for those companies not willing to adapt to more flexible virtual or hybrid arrangements. The other piece of this is with virtual or hybrid work, it disrupted this assumption that said our businesses have to be geographically bound. So if I have an office in San Francisco that people you know who work for me, they have to live in the area and they need to commute in. I mean, the cost of living there, for example, the commute times there, that's just one geographic location, but it illustrates the difficulties of assuming that people just need to be in a physical space. But you disrupt that assumption and now you recognize, well, wait a minute, there's no reason. There's literally zero reason why we have to limit ourselves in that way. I can have a distributed team from across the globe. I can track top talent from anywhere in the world as long as they have you know, the technology and the internet connection that they need for us to be able to collaborate. And so why limit ourselves? Why limit ourselves to only the local geographic labor force? Why limit ourselves and force people to spend hours commuting into a centralized office location just so they can go to meeting after meeting that's pointless and reduces their productivity even further. So disrupting these sorts of things, I think we're going to get better at how we design work. And sometimes that means we're going to be in person, but a lot of times we don't need to be in person for the types of work that happen in the knowledge economy. And people are just going to have to get more comfortable with that. Do you think that's the way it's truly going to go? I mean, I think that as you talk about it, it sounds like a wonderful ideal world 
but my thought and perspective is unfortunately I don't think there's enough high quality highly purpose driven organizations to house all of the folks that are looking for a job in that way and at some point it just becomes a, a weird out game where you know employees need money they're going to need a job somewhere do you think there's enough collective power within the workforce and enough of the ability to kind of push for that change to ultimately win will we just sort of see it pushed a little bit I mean really that was the trend before the mm. pandemic and there's clear data on this going back multiple decades that you know clearly we didn't have the extensive you know rate of virtual work that we have now mm-hmm. but hybrid work virtual work i mean people were doing telecommuting back in the 80s <laughs> yeah. and so it's been a thing it just hasn't been a widely spread or highly adopted thing across industries you know it's been kind of pocketed here and there. So it's been a thing, it's been growing over time. And, you know, the best predictions have looked at, you know, pre-pandemic, the best predictions said, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see increasing levels, you know, the trend is going to continue increasing levels of more virtual and hybrid work that got disrupted because of the pandemic and people who were resistant to the use of the technologies, or they were skeptical about the value of virtual work and how well employees can do in that kind of a virtual environment and such, those people were thrust into it and they were forced to reconcile it. Hmm. And the vast majority, there's been surveys on this during the pandemic, the vast majority of people who didn't want to go virtual, but found themselves going virtual, recognized after six months or so that, hey, this is actually great. (laughs) We like it for all these different (laughs) reasons. And, you know, leaders found that they could still manage their teams and have really productive teams. Individuals found they really liked the flexibility and that they could still contribute in meaningful ways. And ultimately, overall productivity skyrocketed during the pandemic for most organizations. And so I do think that the the natural trend was taking us that way anyways, and disruptive technologies were already shaking up the nature of work and shifting us that way anyways. The pandemic accelerated us to get there further faster. And I don't see us going back. I really do see us continuing in this trajectory, recognizing, of course, that there is a time and a place for people to be in person. So hybrid work arrangements make a whole lot of sense. That's personally what I prefer. I like being in person. I like being in the office. I like collaborating face-to-face with colleagues. But if I'm being honest about the work that I do, the number of hours in a week where I really need to be at a physical location in close proximity to other people and collaborate directly with them in person versus the amount of work that I can do from literally anywhere. I could be on a beach in Hawaii. I could be in Tahiti. I could be you know, up in the mountains. I could be anywhere. It doesn't matter. That's the vast majority of my work week. I can literally do it from anywhere. And so let's say the university decided they don't want people working remotely or in a hybrid arrangement. And they decided that, no, everyone needs to be in their office. All professors need to be in their office eight to five every day. There would be upheaval. Like people would simply say no. (laughs) And then the university would have to make a decision. Like they either have to go through the process to get rid of a whole bunch of tenured professors, or they would, you know, have to adapt. And that's a bit of a unique situation because higher ed is different than the typical organization, but the same realities there that organizations are fighting for talent. It's a buyer's market for labor right now. It's And so employees have the control. The other piece of this that I think is worth noting is we have been seeing the growth of the gig economy, the contingent workforce. And so 
it is easier and easier for individuals who say they're questioning the traditional career path or questioning working with an organization as a traditional employer employee relationship. And they say, you know what, I really kind of want to do my own thing. I want to be my own boss. The gig economy has grown tremendously over the last couple of decades. That trajectory was clear. It's grown even more rapidly over the last 18 months during the pandemic. And there are more and more technology enhanced and facilitated networks for people to get connected and in touch with talent across the globe. So if I'm an individual, I mean, it could be anything. I could be an HR person. I could be a marketing person, a PR person. I could be a coder. I could, you know, think of any job where you have some sort of expertise. You can put yourself out there for contract work. And there are platforms to connect you with organizations that want to rent your talent. Mm -hmm. So that maybe they don't want you as a part-time employee. They don't want you as a full-time employee, but they know you're a good worker, they need your skills, and they're going to rent your talent, and they're going to give you project-based work. And more and more people are actually preferring that to the traditional employer-employee relationship. And that has been a pretty steady trend, and it's accelerated during the pandemic as well. So you couple those things together, people, especially younger generations, not necessarily wanting the traditional employer-employee relationship, people not being willing to put up with crappy cultures, crappy companies, inequitable companies, crappy leaders, and people wanting more flexibility over over their life and how they do their work. And I think it, that largely gets us to where we're at right now. Mm. Well, let's talk then about your two books, uh, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership and Bluer Than Indigo, the common red thread through both of them, this notion of becoming a truly remarkable leader. What does that mean to you? What is a truly remarkable leader in today's day and age? I think it's different for everybody. So I'm not a believer that there's like this cookie cutter template of a remarkable leader. I think what makes a leader remarkable is that they do the inner work necessary to better understand themselves, to understand their abilities, their competencies and capabilities, and to develop themselves and leverage their strengths in a way to serve and lead those around them in an effective way. So people have different leadership styles. People have different backgrounds. They have different strengths, different weaknesses, et cetera. And as long as I can be authentic and better understand where I'm coming from as a leader, then I can grow into myself. I can grow into my leadership capacities and capabilities, and I can become a remarkable leader. I also think that remarkable leadership requires us to not only develop ourselves, but to develop those around us. The mark of a truly great leader is not how smart they are or not how talented they are. The remarkable leader is how well do they develop the people around them? How well do they help develop their team? How much, you know, do, do they create the next generation of leaders who can surpass their own abilities and capabilities? Are they able to spot talent and to help people, individuals on their team, recognize the potential within and then find the motivation to reach out and grab it and develop themselves into that potential? So again, there's not a one size fits all, there's no template, but there's, I think, a common kind of a process that we need to go through as we're trying to better understand ourselves, we're trying to better understand how we interact with other people. We can find a better fit between you know, our interests, our passions, and, you know, what we want to do and the type of career and the type of jobs and work that we want to pursue, the better the fit, the better the alignment between our values, our purpose, what fulfills us and the type of organization we work with, or the type of company we start as an entrepreneur or the type of gig work we do or whatever, that then gives us greater potential to authentically then lead those around us mm -hmm. to help mm -hmm. them to become their best self. I think that's ultimately the mark of a truly remarkable leader. Yeah, I love of that. And I think the challenge, the problem is too often we're focused 
focused on the external aspect of our leadership. You know, can I handle difficult conversations well? Can I think strategically? Can I align my team? And we don't spend enough time focusing on that inner work that you said, which ultimately drives and sustains everything else. So I love that perspective, John. Thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your perspective and your expertise. Where can folks hear more about you and the work that you do? Uh, both academically and within organizations, where's the best place to find you? Yeah, I, there's a couple places. Probably the easiest place is just on LinkedIn. If you search Jonathan H. Westover, I'll pop right up. I'm happy to connect. And that will then link you out to all the different places I'm active in doing things. I write extensively for Forbes and for HR.com. There are various magazines. I do have my own podcast. We're about, I don't know, 760 or so episodes in. It's called the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where we talk about all sorts of different organizational leadership and people management topics. The vast majority of those episodes are interviews with industry leaders, executives, thought leaders from around the world with listeners in you know 140 plus countries. We have a really nice diverse set of, of guests uh, that, that bring perspectives from all over the globe. And I would encourage you to check out that podcast. Uh, you can find my books on Amazon or any you know uh, retailer. And uh, ultimately, don't be a stranger. Reach out, get connected. I'm always happy to chat about the challenges organizations face. And you know I see it as my purpose, my mission to try to help organizations be the most effective they can and to treat their people with dignity and respect so everyone can thrive. Well, we will make sure to link to all of those great places to meet and connect with you in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Westover, thank you so much for being here with me for sharing your thoughts your perspective and your insight it was a great conversation the alchemy of truly remarkable leadership ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.